Welcome to FedSpeak, uh, the Canadian edition, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Greg Quinn in Ottawa. With me today is Stuart Bergman, Chief Economist at Export Development Canada, the country's trade finance bank. Uh, Stuart, uh, thanks for being on today. My pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, let's get uh, right into it. You've done some research and, and you're saying that the US, the Canadian and the global economies can avoid a recession next year, but it's a close call because central banks are fighting inflation. What is it that keeps us all out of a recession, even as interest rates keep rising? Sure. Thanks, Greg. So uh, as you say, our base case forecast is calling for global growth to fall to 2.2% this year and uh, and reach only 2.6% in 2023. And what that means is that we do believe that the global economy does sidestep a recession as defined by two consecutive quarters of falling per capita GDP. But I should say that while the global economy uh, avoids a recession, it's not necessarily the case for all countries, right? We expect the uh, euro area to remain in recession. Well, in fact, we expect the euro, the, the euro area is already in recession uh, as of Q3 and to remain in recession uh, through the first quarter of next year, thanks to uh, surging energy costs, declining consumer purchasing power, and of course, business pessimism in the zone. Uh, meanwhile, the Chinese government is leaning heavily into its economy um, and uh, will likely only manage growth of 3.2% this year and uh, 5.1% in 2023, which, you know, by Chinese standards, by, you know, historically is, is quite weak by Chinese standards. Uh, and I will say that a lot of that really depends on whether China can move past its uh, zero COVID policy next year. And what's more is that, uh, you know, global growth with a two handle, uh, if you can say that, if not recessionary, is pretty darn close. Right. It's 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 almost as close as you can get. And so the analogy that I, I've been using is that of, uh, of a bicycle. You know, the bike is moving really, really slowly. It, it's still upright, but it's kind of wobbly. And even just the tiniest pebble can sort of cause it to to tip over. The problem is that the path ahead is absolutely littered with pebbles. So why do we think the U.S. economy avoids a recession? Well, from our perspective, it gets back to the U.S. consumer. So the consumer in the U.S. is actually sitting, still sitting on a huge amount of cash. In fact, uh, U.S. households are sitting on around one and a half trillion dollars of what we call cash on hand, acting as a bit of a buffer. And that's huge. That's basically insurance on almost three months worth of pre-pandemic retail sales. And so with the consumer in the United States accounting for 70 percent of that country's economy, that's a lot of insurance, right? Even as government transfer payments, uh, the housing market net trade as a result of a stronger US dollar are expected to weigh things down a little bit. But we believe that with an historically tight jobs market, uh, these pandemic era, era savings, uh, still pent up demand, uh, should continue to drive growth in the US, albeit more moderately going forward. Now, while our base case isn't calling for a technical recession in the US, we do expect uh, a whole lot of nothing through the end of this year. Uh, and into the first half of uh, 2023. So uh, growth of 1.4%, which is our, our forecast for 2022 for the U.S., uh, implies that we expect to see a negative quarter in the fourth quarter of this year before an essentially flat quarter in 2023, in, uh, rather a flat year in 2023 with growth for the year as a whole at 0.6%. So while this isn't a recession, it is very weak, uninspired, below-trend growth for the U.S. economy. Now, in Canada, uh, we're benefiting from many of the same dynamics as they are in the U.S., with 
you know, consumers coming into the lockdown with, uh, uh, with strong cash reserves, thanks to government pandemic transfers. Uh, but in our country, that cash pileup adds up to a little bit less than uh, one month worth of pre-COVID retail sales. Uh, though we're, we are also benefiting from stronger commodity prices uh, since the onset of the war, which has given us a bit of an added resilience to, uh, to the recent turmoil. That said, uh, in our country, we do have concerns around housing excesses, uh, elevated levels of consumer debt, probably more so than uh, we're, what we're seeing in the United States as we move into this sort of tightening of, uh, of the credit environment. And so that's kind of another pebble there, unique to Canada, if you will. Uh, for the Canadian economy, we're expecting growth of 3.2% uh, in uh, 2022 and 1.3% in 2023. Again, thanks to still strong commodity prices, and a relatively resilient labor market. So again, while we're not calling for a technical recession, I mean, the quarterly profile heading into 2023 couldn't be much weaker. And so in North America, a lot really depends, to get back to your question, a lot really depends on uh, that consumer continuing to spend. But we believe with elevated cash uh, reserves and historically tight job market, uh, it does give us just enough momentum to avoid seeing that bicycle from, from tipping over. Uh, your, your bicycle analogy reminds me that during the pandemic uh, shutdowns, bicycles are very hard to find. Uh, yeah. The price of bicycles shot through the roof here in Ottawa and a lot of places. You know, this had a lot to do with global supply chains and inflation has become a, a, a major concern. I'm wondering what you're seeing on the road ahead for global supply chains and how that's going to influence global inflation. So whereas food costs were increasing even before the war, the invasion triggers even more pricing pressure, right? With prices for corn, soybean, beef, all well up. Now on the food front, we unfortunately don't expect much relief in the next year or so, given that damage to agricultural lands and uh, the displacement of labor, both in Russia and in Ukraine, um, has almost certainly disrupted plantings for, for next season, for, for next harvest season. Uh, what's more is that as the harvest gets underway this year in this very critical breadbasket of the world, uh, those suppliers that still can't ship their crops are going to have a hard time financing production next season, especially if input costs remain at currently elevated levels. Because remember, between Russia and Belarus, you're talking about 40% of the world's uh, fertilizer exports, right? On the industrial side, uh, Russia and Ukraine together supply about half of the world's uh, crude iron exports used for steel production. Russian slab steel is then sent to uh, Turkey, it's sent to Italy, it's sent to Mexico to make sheet metal parts. Uh, Russia also supplies 40% of the world's palladium, 30% of the world's titanium. It's a key nickel producer, the third largest exporter of coal, the world's largest exporter of softwood lumber. So there's very few industries that are escaping the pricing pressures here from agriculture to autos, from uh, aerospace to clean tech, construction to communication technologies. But much of the, the, the attention these days seems to be focused on energy prices, right? With Russia producing about 12% of the world's oil and responsible for uh, about a fifth of global natural gas production. Also keep in mind the use of grains and biofuels. Uh, and so we're not expecting a quick resolution to the situation in Ukraine. And uh, while prices have fallen back to some extent on, on, uh, on concerns around uh, economic activity, the IEA still expects oil demand to exceed its pre-COVID peak of 100 million barrels per day sometime in early 2023, thanks to fuel switching from uh, gas to oil. So this is obviously not a welcome sign for central bankers. 
uh, because while you know higher interest rates can certainly help tame demand, as far as I know, central bankers don't pump oil or can't plant more wheat. Um, now, Russian oil is continuing to find its way into global markets, obviously at a steep discount. Uh, other producers like Iran, uh, Libya, Venezuela can also add uh, marginal production as well. Additionally, we believe that uh, OPEC's so-called Goldilocks band around oil, so not too high, not too low, is probably about $100 a barrel. And Saudi Arabia has shown that they are very willing to manage supplies in order to get us closer to that target range. Uh, but we expect oil to be in for a heightened period of volatility, with prices increasingly disconnected from supply-demand fundamentals and more driven by uh, headline risk and, and the disruptive levels of liquidity that are sloshing around uh, in the system. Keep in mind that the paper market for crude, uh, so oil futures, is about 50 times the size of the physical market. So you got to ask yourself, you know, what's driving prices here? So when we throw all that together, uh, we expect WTI crude to average $98 a barrel this year before settling back slightly to $84 a barrel in 2023. And that should have a slightly moderating impact on uh, core prices. We're also seeing supply, train, uh, supply chain pressures ease uh, and shipping rates come down. Um, softening global demand is obviously playing a role here, though uh, this really does vary depending on the product, the commodity, the region, and of course the mode of transportation that, uh, that you're talking about. All that said, we expect to see inflation easing through next year uh, and probably coming back into target range uh, by the end of 2023, beginning of 2024, um, and specifically, I'm talking about, you know, target range in the U.S. and the Canadian economies. Uh, I'd like to talk a bit more about energy um, that you've mentioned here. You know, you, your forecast is kind of growing a bit faster than the U.S. I wonder, firstly, in the short term, is it the energy and commodity prices that help Canada do a bit better than, than the U.S. economy? And in the medium term, you know, there's been talk that Canada could step up and fill the supply gap in Europe after the, the Ukraine invasion. Um, there's also been some concern about project approvals in Canada and, and climate change rules. Is energy going to help Canada outperform in the short term? And is there a bigger opportunity for the energy industry in Canada to export abroad? Uh, in terms of the prospects for energy, um, you know, we think that the, the, the prospects for, for, uh, for energy exports are, are generally good. Uh, as countries are looking for energy security, uh, the current geopolitical context is a boon uh, for Canada as you know, the world's fourth largest oil producer and fifth largest natural gas producer. Uh, but whereas you know, we pledged back in March to, produce, to uh, boost rather oil and gas production by up to 200,000 barrels per day and uh, 16,000 cubic meters per day respectively, Europe was importing 2.2 million barrels per day uh, of oil and 420 million cubic meters per day of gas from Russia. So, you know, we're really only able to make up a, a fraction of the de deficit. Addition additionally, uh, in the short term, Canada's ability to fill the gap, uh, we believe is quite limited with Canadian producers already producing at near capacity. So it would take several years and billions of dollars of investment to uh, add production at a time when you know, many companies are under pressure to show increased capital discipline and, as you suggest, help reduce carbon emissions. Uh, volatile asset prices uh, in the context of central bank efforts to soak up excess liquidity is also adding to uncertainty there. 
And even if we could ramp up production, the issue is that our ability to export that additional capacity remains constrained by our export infrastructure, right? So Canada's current energy export infrastructure is almost entirely geared towards uh, the US as a result of the location of supply basins and uh, demand centers, uh, the integration of our transportation network, as well as obviously existing Canada-US free trade agreements. And so in the absence of a trans-Canadian pipeline, for example, shipping uh, Western Canadian oil to Europe would basically mean transporting the oil to the Gulf Coast through pipelines or by rail before then loading it onto tankers and shipping it across the Atlantic, obviously at a much higher cost. The same thing is true for natural gas, right? Exporting to Europe would require us to either ship through the United States at a greater cost or just sell to the U.S. at a lower price to then allow the, the U.S. to export more to Europe for a higher price. Um, in the medium term, there may be opportunities for Canada to export more oil from uh, Newfoundland and Labrador to Europe. Uh, three ongoing oil projects on the East Coast are expected to add an additional almost 300,000 uh, barrels per day of capacity by 2028. Uh, the offshore projects there have, uh, have a price advantage over Western Canadian Select, as well as a lower break-even price. Uh, additional oil production out of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador has a lower average emissions compared to uh, the offshore international average. Uh, on the natural gas side, uh, supplying Europe would require investment in LNG facilities along the East Coast to allow, us, uh, to allow for the liquefaction of natural gas in order to be shipped over uh, to Europe. And this would take time, of course, and would take money and, and obviously uh, assurances of long-term purchasing agreements. It would also require uh, designing these new terminals to perhaps handle green hydrogen, helping to kind of build a bridge to a future where we're exporting hydrogen in the form of, of ammonia. So our capacity to provide additional oil and gas to Europe is limited both by our export infrastructure and our production capacity as well. Uh, we do believe that there's opportunities to, for Canada to provide more oil and gas to Europe over the medium term. But, you know, again, this would take the right forms of investment and even then would be limited compared to uh, other swing producers like OPEC, OPEC Plus or, uh, or the United States. Um, the, the U.S. also looms over Canada this year in another sense. The, the U.S. dollar has been very strong against a lot of currencies and, and has weakened Canada's do dollar as, as well. Yeah. Um, I believe your forecast has has the the loony falling maybe three cents next year to around 75 US cents. Um, as I said, other currencies have fallen quite a bit more. So what is it that puts Canada in this spot of further depreciation, but not as large as other countries next year? Sure. Well, when we look at uh, the drivers of the Canadian dollar, say our Canadian dollar uh, model, uh, we basically look at five factors. The first is energy prices, so mainly crude, where as a general rule of thumb, uh, a $10 move uh, in the price of crude gives us about three cents on the dollar, though you know, that's a relationship that's fallen away a bit more recently. Uh, Non-energy commodities, so things like uh, copper, lumber, potash, uh, nickel, where again, as a general rule of thumb, a 10% move in the basket of non-energy commodities gives you about four cents. Uh, the interest rate differential with the U.S., uh, general U.S. dollar movements. So when risk goes up, the world tends to uh, get really sweet on the greenback, right, and, and pile into the U.S. dollar. Uh, and of course, there's, you know, sort of the traditional halo effect that the U.S. dollar has, which I think maybe has declined a bit since the U.S. imposed sanctions on Russia, though 
you know, we certainly don't believe that the U.S. has fallen away as a, as a preferred global reserve currency. So there's a whole host of forces that are pushing and pulling on the loonie at this point. We know that uh, higher rates in the U.S. have led to an appreciation, as you suggest, of the U.S. dollar against most other currencies. Uh, additionally, with all the volatility that's out there, uh, the relative safety of the U.S. dollar is encouraging investors to continue to pile into uh, to the greenback. But when we look at the Canadian dollar in particular, uh, we believe that the Bank of Canada will likely remain uh, in lockstep with the Fed versus some other central banks who may have a harder time keeping pace uh, with the Federal Reserve because of the need to more delicately balance inflation against growth concerns. So I think about the European Central Bank as an example, um, or per perhaps some other uh, some some emerging markets. Additionally, st still strong commodity prices continue to support the loonie, uh, both energy, non-energy commodities. And, um, you know, finally, I might question, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, the extent of the halo effect. The U.S. dollar is, uh, you know, um, may not be as strong as it once was, let's say. Um You've, uh, I, I believe you, like some other inter international bodies, have, have said we're in a time where the policy moves have been so great and so dramatic and the economy shifted so suddenly that there's a higher risk for error or missteps, you know, whether it's monetary policy or fiscal policy, or I, I suppose if you look at China, even the way health rules around COVID are still being implemented. Is there... In all of those uh, policy spaces, is there one where you see particular concern that there's a, a risk of a, a misstep? Well, we see it playing out these days uh, in, in a very big way in the UK, for example. Certainly unusual times when you have monetary and fiscal policy working in direct opposition to each other. And so you can bet that the Fed is watching the ECB very closely, watching the Bank of England very closely, wondering whether it's looking at some future version of itself or questioning whether there's a very real risk that central bankers could be hiking, hiking us into an economic slowdown. But the question for me then becomes, what do central bankers do when inflation is still very high, but very clearly falling, and unemployment is still low, but very clearly rising? Because there's there's a good chance that we're going to be in that situation before long. And remember that monetary policy comes with roughly a 12 to 18 month lag. So it's a very fine line that central bankers are walking here, right? Because up until now, cheap money has been letting governments spend. Well, it's let governments borrow, which is let governments spend. It's underpinned historic stock market valuations. And so a, a sudden change to that could be painful, could hit equity, credit, housing markets in certain countries, take the shine off of certain commodities, impact currency stability. So what happens in financial markets if central banks move too far, too fast, or as I say, if they stay in restrictive territory for too long, right? Higher real yields, and this could expose over-leveraged corporates who've spent the last number of years loading up on unproductive debt. Higher interest rates in advanced economies could potentially also lead to a reversal of capital flows into emerging markets, many of whom spent, uh, first of all, came into the pandemic with elevated debt levels already and spent the last number of years experimenting with uh, larger budget deficits, unconventional monetary policies. I'll also say that the stronger U.S. dollar is going to uh, pose a problem for those countries with a significant portion of their debt denominated in U.S. dollars. Uh, in, in these times, I, I feel like I should ask for an, an optimistic note. You know, there are some upside risks for, for Canada and the world economy. Um, what do you see as those kinds of, of opportunities? Uh, generally, I'll say Canadians will face headwinds from tighter credit conditions, uh, 
um, the, the tighter credit conditions that we're expecting. As rate hikes flow through, we expect the domestic economy in Canada to gradually weaken. But in that context, trade should actually be a net contributor to our economic prospects, obviously helped by uh, a weakening of the Canadian dollar. Uh, commodity exporters are generally benefiting from still tight global supplies and uh, still high prices across much of the commodity complex. And so, uh, as we've said, as countries are looking uh, for energy security, for example, and renewable sources of energy at that, the uh, current geopolitical context provides uh, some opportunity for growth there. Uh, meanwhile, agricultural exporters from Canada will likewise remain critical to feeding the world as long as the war in Ukraine continues, uh, likely even beyond that. Now, while transport and logistics constraints may have prevented exporters from realizing the full benefits of uh, higher ag prices, together with the input, Im, uh, impact of higher input costs, uh, shipping rates have come down significantly and supply chains have eased significantly from where they were this time last year. As we mentioned, crop producers are also gonna benefit from uh, increased yields this harvest season. For other sectors uh, like aerospace, uh, autos, uh, tourism dependent sectors, the conditions are actually improving in a post COVID world. So, you know, while the reasons may vary, many sectors are well positioned for opportunities, but you need to keep your eyes on those pebbles. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. This has been the FedSpeak podcast by MI Market News. Uh, you can reach me with feedback at greg.quinn at marketnews.com. If you like the show, tell a friend. Hope to be with you again soon. And thank you, Stuart, for being my guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg.